Good morning. Welcome to Grace. My name is R. Dallas Green. Glad you're here. This church is all about discipleship. We're here to be disciples who are making disciples, who are living their lives and loving like Jesus. Yesterday, we had another discipleship experience. We call it DSE. We're glad to give everybody here a taste of discipleship. And right now, about 76%, believe it or not, 76% of our regular tenders are involved in real-life discipleship groups. So this series we're currently in now, James, is a perfect opportunity for you to get connected to a group. We've got a great curriculum, some great groups that are open. Love you to become part of that. We're in a series now, um, verse by verse, the book of James. So you can log on to Grace Guest and pull it up on um, version on your mobile device, or you can go old school like me and just open your Bible to James chapter 2. We want to welcome our friends over from Habitat. Habitat for Humanity is here today. Um, our own Bethany Miller is involved with Habitat, and we've, you asked about getting involved with the community. We invited them on our campus. We hope you can have a conversation. Um, roll up your sleeves. Um, you may have been to the Restore. Anybody been to Restore? All you need to go to Restore and see the awesome stuff that's down there, and or maybe give some stuff to Restore, but we want to target some communities and impact our community. So welcome to you all from Habitat. We're glad you're here. We have an ideal in America of racial equality. Martin Luther King, now about 50 years ago, said that he hoped one day his children, our children, would not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Question is, how are we doing? Are we making progress toward racial equality? Well, if you ask white and black people, they'll have different perspectives on that topic. About 50% or so of white people, if you ask them how we're doing with racial equality, 50% would say we're making huge progress. Whereas less than one in three African Americans would say we're making progress in the area of racial equality. A majority of African Americans believe that there is unfair treatment in the criminal justice system, in our public schools, and in the workplace. Now, most Americans, I think, would agree that more work needs to be done in the whole area of racial equality. But the question is, is it about passing laws, the pressure from the outside, right? Or is it about a change on the inside, the level of the heart. James wants to address that topic this morning in James chapter 2. So turn there, however you're going to get there. And he begins his conversation with these words. My brothers, he's talking now to believers, disciples. My brothers, as believers in our Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. So what is favoritism? Favoritism is to favor somebody unfairly over somebody else. Partiality is to be partial to somebody based on the externals. What James is saying is that believers should not be prejudiced. Now, 80% of you just sighed a a breath of relief, right? Saying, I'm not prejudiced. This sermon, sort of, I get a free pass on, right? Because that's not me. I'm not prejudiced. I'm not partial. It's just that I like to hang out with people who are like me. That's a little joke, by the way. 
You know, I'm white. I like to hang out with white people. I'm black. I like to hang out with black people. I'm Hispanic. I basically like to fellowship with other Hispanics. I'm Asian. You know, I like to be with other Asian people. You know, birds of a flock, feather flock together. Would you say that the racial divide in America has gotten better or worse? Would you say the tension between the races is diminishing or increasing? If we still have discrimination, why is that true? First thing I want to say to you is that as disciples, we are called to rise above discrimination. To say you're a believer and to show favoritism are incompatible. We are called to follow the person of Jesus Christ, and Jesus did not show favoritism. He did not judge by the outside. Even Jesus' enemies said of him, you aren't swayed by men. You pay no attention to who they are. Jesus did not look at the outside appearance of a person and show favoritism to them. But yet there is discrimination in our land, right? Discrimination on the basis of gender, whether someone's a man or a woman. Discrimination on the basis of how someone looks, whether they are heavy or skinny. Discrimination on the basis of how someone talks with their accent. Discrimination on where they're from, their ethnicity. Discrimination on the basis of the color of someone's skin. Discrimination on the basis of their religion. You see, discrimination can be covert or overt. Overt discrimination is something you're probably quite familiar with, of refusing to serve somebody or pushing them to the back of the bus. But covert discrimination may be seeing three people of another race on the street and thinking the worst of them. I asked my son Josh, I said, Josh, what would be, because his generation, he's 20 years old, what would be, just turned 21, what would be, <laughs> what would be to you racism? He said, Dad, if I went to college tomorrow and I hadn't done my science math homework and I found some Asian guy, I didn't know his name, we had no relationship, and I said, hey, help me with my science or math because you've got to be good in science or math. I didn't know who he was, didn't know his name, but yet he's Asian, so he's got to be able to help me. He said, Dad, that would be racism. I believe that you have the power in Jesus Christ to rise above discrimination. Some of you here are in the military and will sit in meetings where matters of fairness, equality, justice will be discussed. I want you to rise above discrimination. Some of you here are teachers working with disadvantaged students, coming from families where there's much, much brokenness. You have the opportunity to show the love of Jesus and perhaps change the trajectory of that student's life. All of you here will sit in restaurants sometime soon to now, and you'll have waiters coming from all over the world. And you'll have an opportunity to say, hey, what is your name? 
and really ask the question to hear the person's name, say their name back to them. Or to ask the question, where do you come from? And really be curious about them. I don't know what kind of family you were raised in. I don't know what kind of family you're in now. But I imagine some of you here were raised without much prejudice. Debbie's family did not have any prejudice that I knew of. They were from Kansas, and they just basically loved everybody. But some of you, like me, may have been raised with prejudice. My parents were from the South. I was born to white parents. Maybe you didn't notice, but my parents were white. They moved me and my family into a white neighborhood. And primarily, my friends growing up were white friends. We went to a white school. I was taught white values. I see life through sort of a white man's lens until the 1960s and 70s when the civil rights came along and desegregation, busing. My school became a war zone. My neighborhood became a war zone. And then I became a believer when I was 21 years old. And the first book I ever studied was the book of James. And this very verse, don't show favoritism, began to strike me that God loves diversity, that God gives diversity. We have so much to learn from each other. I had to face the fact that there was much prejudice in my family growing up. I was raised by racists. I never could have brought an African-American to my house. I never, would have brought, I never would have taken them through that. But you know, my primary identity isn't that I'm white. You know, I don't know why we call ourselves white because I'm sort of olive. I, um, I um, get blue when it's cold outside. I get red, sunburned like you do when it's hot outside. So I get blue and red, but I'm mainly olive. I'm sort of either a lighter olive or a darker olive. But to say that my skin color defines me would not be true because my primary identity is I am a child of God, and I'm part of the body of Christ. And in his body, there's great diversity. We learn so much from each other. You see, we're all born into a family, aren't we? We're born into a family and our family has values. You know, you can't get a GED in America without knowing it's a primarily white nation. But you can get a PhD in America and not know much about diversity. Were you raised in racism? Have you become passive in your racism? I don't mean to unnecessarily offend you, but oftentimes we build a wall around ourselves, a protective wall, not letting people from the outside in. God treats all people the same. Why do we show preferences? James chapter 2 and verse 2. Somewhere, someplace, the church here has gathered. All the familiar faces are there in the room, the brothers and sisters, 
But suddenly, two people darken the room. The first guy coming through the door, it says here in James chapter 2, verse 2, is wearing a gold ring and fine clothes. Literally, he's gold-fingered. Let's call him Mr. Goldfinger. The implication is this person has money. He's very wealthy. Not only is he wearing a gold ring, but he has fine clothes on, literally glowing or shining clothes. Now, he didn't get his clothes off the sales rack at Kohl's. His clothes are tailored and pressed and expensive. I imagine this guy with his fine suit has got a suntan. In the middle of the winter, he's tanned. He's got gold jewelry, and he's pressed, and he's tailored. But then there's this other guy at the door, and his clothes aren't tailored. They aren't pressed. His clothes are shabby. He most likely is wearing his only set of clothes. His clothes have had better days, and they aren't, and they are torn and tattered. Now, in this generation, it seems, we put value upon clothing like jeans being pre-washed and faded and torn. Some of us wonder, why would we buy new clothes that are faded and torn? So in this generation, this, what happens here in the story is one guy shows up with tattered, torn clothing, and the other guy comes with very fine clothing on. One guy is rich, and one guy is poor. And everybody's eyes are on the rich guy. But no one's seeming to pay attention to the poor guy. You ever been somewhere and you didn't dress up for the occasion and they don't know who you are and you aren't treated especially well? You're kind of ignored or neglected, right? Then somebody finds out who you are. Oh, you're Mr. So-and-so or you're Miss So-and-so. I just didn't know you were here. And all of a sudden, the equation begins to shift. You go from being Mr. Nobody to now Mr. Somebody. So when this rich guy shows up, somebody gives him the nod of recognition. Somebody rises to their feet. They give up their seat and say, hey, here, sit in this nice seat. We've got a seat just for you. But to the poor man, Nobody moves a muscle. They say to him, hey, you stand over there. Hey, you sit by my feet. You humiliate the poor man. You embarrass him. I want you to think about my question. If God treats all people the same, if God is impartial, why do we show favoritism? Could such a thing happen in God's church. The language here suggests that favoritism was happening. James had witnessed people showing favor based on externals. He saw the poor being ignored, and he saw the rich being pampered. Could something like this happen in our culture? Well, you don't have to go back to the Dark Ages You don't even have to go to the Middle Ages. You can just go to 1739. There was a man whose name was John Wesley. And John Wesley would come to church, but he found the church was not the place for the common man. The common people didn't come to church. 
They were out in the fields. They were in the coal mines. So John Wesley went to the fields, to the graveyards, and the coal mines, when the coal miners were coming out of their work, having worked through the night, and there he would preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to the common man. And the common man would hear the gospel, and with tears streaming down their face, they would believe. There was no room for the common man in the Church of England. So he founded what was known as the Methodist Episcopal Church. Fast forward 100 years to 1846, and there was another man whose name was William Booth, founder of Salvation Army. So he went into the streets, and there he found the poor and the degraded. And he walked them into the church, past the benches where the poor sat without backs, and into the front seats. And there they sat in very close relationship to the pulpit to hear the proclamation of the gospel. You see, the tendency of the church, whether you want to admit it or not, is to have a heart for the poor, to try to reach out to the poor, but then to get comfortable with ourselves and to become elitist and exclusive. That's the tendency the church steps into. A story is told of a poor woman, and she wanted to join the church. So she went to the pastor and she said, I'd really like to become part of your church. He said, well, we need to think about this. Why don't you go home and think about this for a whole week? So she went home and thought about it and came back in a week and said, you know, I'd like to become part of the church. And he said, well, you know, this church is all about the Bible. We need to study the Bible. Why don't you go home and study the Bible every night for a week? And so she took her Bible and she studied every night for an hour all week long and she was blessed by the reading of the Word. And she came back and she said, I'd like to join the church. The pastor said, let's not be hasty about all this. Why don't you go home and pray? Just pray and ask God if He really wants you to become part of this church. So they hadn't seen each other for about six months. And one day he saw her in the town and he said, what did God tell you to do? And she said, well, the Lord said, don't, try bother, don't bother trying to join that church. I've been trying to get into myself for the last 20 years. <laughs> what if Jesus wanted to come to church today? What if this is Jesus' church? A diverse church of people that are rich and poor, Gentile and Jew, men and women, no distinctions. Why do we show preferences? Here's my answer. The poor do not have resources. Oftentimes, they haven't been able to go to school. They don't have marketable skills. They don't have social connections. They're in need of help. They're not in need of a handout. They're in need of a hand up. They need someone who's going to love them where they are and empower them to move forward. Whereas the rich with the gold ring, with the fine clothes, <laughs> they, 
they have the capacity right now to make a difference. It's going to take years to help that poor man, but the rich man can help us. This, according to Jesus, is evil thinking. If I think like this, James is telling me, I think amiss. If I'm looking at the externals of people, judging them by their appearance, I have partiality. If my heart has become partial, I am at worst a man without grace, and I am at least in need of God's help. God help me. I know of a young man. He lives in the city. He likes to get up early and get coffee. Do you like to get coffee early in the morning? Well, in his city, he likes to go to the place where they make coffee. And there's a place in the city where they make coffee. They have a bench outside. Now, on the bench sits a woman whose name is Barbara. Barbara is homeless. She spends her nights in the shelter, but she likes to sit on the bench. And she's very affable. She's very likable. She's never really asked him of anything. All she really wants to do is talk. God is impartial. Jesus was in a very high position, but he chose to become very poor. He was born to poor parents in a poor situation, and he feels something for the poor and the vulnerable. Do you? So Jesus came into poverty, humility, not to cater to the rich. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In order to have a relationship with Jesus, a person must become humble to receive God and his grace. So where do you see discrimination? Whoa, that's a question, isn't it? Where do you see discrimination? Have you been discriminated against? Have you ever felt like a minority? I don't often feel like a minority, but when I go down to Haiti, those who know me call me Pastor R. Those who don't know me call me Blanc. <laughs> and for a little season of time, for a week or so, I feel like a minority. It's actually a good experience for me. My heart gets broken in it. Is there discrimination in your office where you work? Is there discrimination in your school? Is there discrimination in your family? What would you do if you saw discrimination happening in your school? If one of your teachers or fellow students was being judged by the color of their skin or their accent or their weight? What would you do if there was discrimination in your hospital? A patient was being judged from something they did. A health professional was being judged because of where they come from, how they speak. Where do you see discrimination? The person being discriminated always feels devalued and excluded and minimized. Why is discrimination far from the heart of God. Hmm. This is what James says in chapter 2, verse 5. Listen, my dear brothers, hasn't God chosen 
those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him. Rich and poor have this in common. The Lord is the maker of them both. Peter went through a pretty extensive process. He was a pretty prejudiced man. He had no dealings to do with Gentiles. And God gave him a vision of a sheet. God broke his heart. And when he showed up at Cornelius' house, he said, Now I know the Lord does not show favoritism. So what James is saying is the poor have a spiritual advantage. The materially poor are more inclined to see their spiritual need. Jesus said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. The poor man knows I need spiritual help. I need help. I need the grace of God. Several years ago, just after the Mexico earthquake, I took a team of people down and we were helping to rebuild things and we were, I was doing some open-air preaching. And so we went to various neighborhoods. And as we went to people's neighborhoods and kind of found out where they lived, we found the wealthy up there on the hillside. And the wealthy had gates. And beside the gates, there was guards. And the guards had weapons. And we learned pretty quickly that they weren't interested in what we had. So we kind of got pushed on to other neighborhoods. But when we came to the poor, we found that their houses weren't completely finished, sort of a work in progress. Oftentimes, there wasn't really a door in the front door. It was sort of a blanket or a sheet there. And what I saw was that the poor had lots of dogs <laughs> running around the poor neighborhood, lots of children, and lots of women. The guys weren't in the village at all, really. They were across the border working. But when we came to the door, the children would say to us stuff like, are you thirsty? It's pretty hot outside. Would you like something to drink? And then they'd say, you know, we're having something to eat. Would you like to break bread with us? Would you like to have something to eat? And why have you come? Like, why have you come to our village? We explained to them, we've come to explain to you how to have peace with God. What we saw was this amazing receptivity on the part of the poor and I thought about this verse. Hasn't God chosen the poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? That you can be physically poor but spiritually rich. And we'd say, can we pray for you? And they would say, yes. The poor aren't ashamed to tell you if they have a need. I tell you, the, the ground is level at the cross. And God has chosen the poor. And we'll never know whom God has chosen until we in the power of the Spirit proclaim the gospel and we will see God at work in that person's heart. And when they believe, we'll see that God has chosen that person poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and heir of the kingdom. The paradox is the poorest on this earth can be richest in faith. Isn't that good? Look at verse 6. But now he's going to bring a word of rebuke to the church. But you have insulted the poor, he says. You have humiliated the poor. You have embarrassed the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? 
Are they not the ones dragging you in the court, slandering the name of him to whom you belong? You see, the poor don't have much. And the rich were charging heavy interest. And then when they couldn't pay their interest, they were foreclosing upon them. And then when they foreclosed upon them, they dragged them in the court. It was exploitation. The rich, the, the rich were exploiting the poor. The poor were being exploited by the rich. And James is asking the question, why do you cater yourself to the rich and give up your seat for him? Now, if a rich person comes, they can have a seat. If a per poor person comes, they can have a seat. But why would you exclude the poor to favor the rich, he's saying. Look at verse 8. But if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. Now he gives a word of affirmation to the church. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, what is the royal law? What's the law of the king? To love your neighbor as yourself. Well, who gave the royal law? The king. His name is Jesus. He said this, a new command I give unto you, that you love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And by this, all men will know you're my disciples, if you love one another. If you keep the royal law found in Scripture, if you love from the heart your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. The question is, what does love require of me? Will I hang on to the prejudice perhaps I was raised with? Or will I follow Jesus who is impartial? To love one's neighbor is the higher law. So let me try to explain this to you. By trying to explain to you gravity, which I can't explain, and aerodynamics. So there's a certain law called gravity. And gravity has to do with mass, right? The lesser mass is, has gravitational pull toward the greater mass. So if, for instance, I say, I don't believe in the law of gravity, and I climb up onto my roof, and I begin to flap my wings like a bird, saying, I don't believe in gravity, I still will go splat. Because there's a lower law called gravity. And then there's a higher law called aerodynamics, the construction of an airplane with, you know, major engines and thrust. But when I'm near an airplane, I always ask the question, will this airplane fly? <laughs> I just find it amazing that this something so huge can fly and defy gravity. I look at people checking in their bags, and they're filled to the brim, right, getting the weight limit. And then I look at them, and they've gotten bigger, people getting on board this airplane. And then I look at the fuel being added to this airplane. I go like, is it really going to fly? And the engine, the pilot revs it up, the plane takes off, and it flies. So there is a law, right? There's the law of man, and I want to tell you what the law of man is. In the law of man, the rich get richer, the poor get poorer, the rich exploit the poor, 
and the poor often feel very entitled to more. The law of man is about self-interest, but there is a higher law. This is called the law of God. The law of God is the rich are generous with their wealth, and they give it away voluntarily. The law of God is the poor, when they receive, become thankful. The rich never exploit the poor. The rich pay the wages to the poor. The rich don't charge exorbitant interest. And the rich are concerned about the poor. In fact, James says it this way. This is pure and undefiled religion, to visit orphans and widows in their distress. The most vulnerable people in the entire culture were the little children and their mothers, the widows and the orphans. And to truly love is to be concerned about someone's well-being, the house they live in, the car they drive, the food on their table. You see, true love always issues in actions. And Jesus is saying to us, if you keep the higher law, you do what's right. But look at verse 9, we'll stop there. But if you show favoritism, you sin. Ooh, that's a hard word, isn't it? We don't use that word very much, sin. Favoritism? You mean when there's favorites based on externals? We're in sin. Does God ever convict you of anything? No? Does the Spirit ever speak to you? Because when the Spirit begins to show you the life of Jesus, of how Jesus lived, of the life he's calling us to live, it means unlearning some things we learned and learning some brand new things we need to learn. And this is something we need to learn to live and love like Jesus, to be a bridge builder, right? to cross over the racial divide, to love diversity, to not discriminate. What would the church look like if it really reflected our community? Do you ever have anybody over the house who's different than you? Different values, different color of the skin, different religion? I think God's calling us to a higher law. I think God's calling us to put his love into action. Pray with me. Father, here we are on a Sunday morning. It's a pretty safe environment. We're pretty comfortable here with our friends. We love our small groups. We love our brothers and sisters, and we're so glad for those familiar faces. But there are people beyond the four walls of this church who are very, very far from you. In order for them to come to a place like this, they're going to need a connection, somebody who built a relationship with them and loved them. God, we thank you for what Habitat does, providing a store where things get put back into uh, use and are sold at a really um, discounted rate so that the ministries of Habitat can be supported. God, thank you for their presence in our community. 
Father, would you show us how to work side by side with them? Would you do a great work in us, Lord, of breaking down whatever prejudice or racism or favoritism exists inside of us? Would we be able to be glad for diversity and what each person brings to the table of God, their stories, being able to listen to their stories of how, God, you have shaped them and formed them, how you have provided for them. Father, would you allow us to become a very diverse place, people from all the different nations and ethnicities, all the different colors. May they come to a place like this and find your enormous love. You tell us that if we keep the royal law found in Scripture, we are doing well. And Father, we want to see your smile and your pleasure. We don't give you pleasure. We want your church to abound and thrive. So Father, even as you had to work in Peter's life, so you may have to work in our lives. Father, do that work in us. We open ourselves to your spirit. Move among us, Lord. May there be a great movement of your spirit in our community. May there be an openness to people with differences. Father, help us not to judge. God, may we have empathy and compassion and not withhold mercy from any person, not withhold kindness or generosity. Father, enable us to meaningfully move into people's lives showing them your great love, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, a sermon like this one, you may feel, wow, that was hard. But what I want you to say is this. I really want to make progress in this area, okay? Perfection here is going to be really hard to attain because Jesus is perfect. But when he's working in us, we're always making progress. May this be a week where you made some progress, maybe had a conversation or a meal with someone or saw someone in the office you paid attention to. Let's be the church that really gives a lot of glory to God because we practice diversity. God bless you.